Welcome to the Owl Hoot Podcast with me, Caroline Norbury. This is a show for any person interested in the environment and sustainability. I arrived at a point in my own life where I wanted to know more about the state of our planet and how I can play my part, albeit small, in mitigating climate change, reducing pollution and supporting biodiversity. I decided that chatting to others who are already doing something might be a good place to start. So each episode will feature a different guest telling their stories in and around an environmental activity that will perhaps provide you with ideas that you can incorporate into your own life. Enjoy listening and let me know if you have a topic you'd like to hear more about on the podcast and I'll do my best to address it. I am delighted that my very first episode uh, of the podcast is with John Grant, Senior Lecturer in Sustainable Construction and Climate Change at Sheffield Hallam University. In addition to teaching sustainable planning, environmental impact assessment and wider environmental issues, John is working on a PhD studying sustainable responses to the projected effects of climate change on the UK housing stock. He's been a regular guest on BBC Radio Sheffield, is an aquaponics enthusiast and a member of Extinction Rebellion. Today we're specifically addressing our homes and buildings and I'm looking forward to extracting John's wisdom on how we can make them more energy efficient. So enough from me, let's get right into it. Welcome John to the podcast. Thank you very much, that, that all sounded a little uh, long-winded there. I, I can't <laughs> believe I do all of that. But yeah, yeah, that, that's kind of me, I guess. Yeah, so thinking about you and, and, and how you got into all things environmental, um, it wasn't always like this. How did you go from, uh, well, as a child, uh, what were you interested in? You went into town planning. Tell me a bit about that and how you landed in the sort of environmental uh, scene. Well, I, I, I grew up in a, on a council estate in Sheffield. My mum was a, a dinner lady, my dad a steel worker, but actually that that sort of hides the idea that they were immigrants from India and both quite middle class. So both privately educated, but emigrated over here in 56. So education was incredibly sort of important to them. But I got that sort of, I got a real mix of, of, of kind of middle class attitude, but growing up in a working class area where my mum told me that I wasn't allowed to have a Yorkshire accent, even though it slips in now and then, that was, that was not allowed. She, she was very wise. She sort of like said, you're not white, John. And if you've got a Yorkshire accent as well, that's two things that they'll pick you up on. So, you know, she was all for the, the agenda. I can't deny, you know, and, and I grew up in that area and it, it was, it was kind of rough and I could see the effects of, of kind of drugs and poverty and, and all of these other issues, poor education on my area. And it was kind of my agenda I'd make things better and in my in my head I thought right I'm going to be I, I'm going to be a police officer and I'm going to save the world um, one crime at a time that was my agenda and I thought to do that I'm going to get a degree and um, and I'm going to you know because it speeds up your promotion or something sure. it was that thing and so I, I decided oh, I'll do I was quite good at geography I really loved studying people and everything and and the physical geography as well the science and and geology and and so I thought, I, you, you people, don't do this, people listening to this. But I literally ripped out the geography section of my UCAS booklet, threw it in the air, and town planning ended up on the top, right? Because I didn't care what, what degree I wanted, because I had an agenda. Of, I was just using the degree. Okay. So it was like something I was going to be interested in. And that's why town planning was on top. And so I never told my mum this. I just picked that and sent my application into that and went to Leeds Poly to do town planning. And in 1988, give away my age, I, I came across, thanks to my, still my best friend, she, she introduced me to this video by, she was, she, her research was on more environment. I, I was an environmentalist. I was going to be a copper, right? Mm. I was an environmentalist. So, uh, and she said, John, you've got to see this. And it was the presentation to the Senate by Jim Hansen 
where he says, you know, I'm head of NASA. I'm paraphrasing it. He's much more eloquent than me. Uh, I'm head of NASA. I've been studying the atmosphere of Mars. I've turned my research straight onto the Earth. And I am 100% confident that humans are making the world warmer. And that's not a good thing. We need to do something about it. And, and I heard this. And then the world responded in a positive way by starting the Rio Earth Summit and the you know, biggest gathering of governments followed in the year. And I went, oh, my goodness, this is what I want to do. I can not just save the world one crime at a time. I can do it all at once. That's got to be more efficient. And so, you know, I with with my best friend, we did a postgrad in environmental management um, and environmental systems at Reading University. And so, you know, that that sort of focused. I told you she was the environmentalist. And so I, I got I just went into that and I did my my first re serious research project um, in 1991 on sustainable communities, zero carbon communities. Uh, and, and, and that was with my supervisor for the government. It was research that was funded by the government back then. We were, and we came up with all the baseline data as to what it would take to make a community zero carbon what's the optimum size what transport infrastructure what energy production what's what energy efficiency of your buildings all of that kind of thing and that's my and you can have a look at it at reading university if you want my my mphil is is probably on the shelf there i suppose uh, and and yeah and so we nailed it that was it victory we just had to roll it out and you know got a couple of jobs eventually got a, a job at, and eventually sort of got a research job at Sheffield Hallam University, which was being funded by the European Union back then, when we were part of the Union, uh, and it was the 100 zero carbon cities. So you can see how I got my got the research place because I'd done this previous research. And that was a research project where they picked 100 cities across Europe, each one sort of like to cover the different characteristics of cities. So they had an a uh, historic city. They had a post-industrial city, which was what Sheffield was. They had, you know, an agriculturally um, market garden kind of city and all of that. And so we did our bit. We then spent three years designing a strategy as to how you would make Sheffield. So this is 1998, no, no, 1995 to 1998. Yeah, 1995 to 1998. We, we came up with a strategy that, that was how to take Sheffield from where it was to zero carbon. And yeah, we published that. European Union took that away with all the other 99 cities. And again, I was like, yay, that's it. Nailed it. So we, we've, I've, I've done my research. I've been involved in real research. Now Sheffield's going to become zero carbon. Woo. Yeah. And. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and I waited and I waited and here we are two years ago, 2019. So what's that? 23 years later, Sheffield City Council says, oh, John, did you know there's a climate emergency? I'm like, really? Is there? It's like, yes, yes, we're going to say there's a climate emergency. And then a year after that, they said, right. Sheffield's going to go zero carbon by 2030, by 2030. So a mere 32 years after I was one of the many men and women who put together that strategy, we're on the path. So, yeah. Obviously, it, I'm imagining it feels good now, maybe, but how has it been through that period where you thought, well, I've got all the answers, let's get on with it, and nothing's happening? How, how did you deal with that? I dealt with it by sort of throwing myself. I did other research projects. We did low carbon strategies in China, Germany, um, low income households. There was loads of other research that we did, all published, for the most part, all ignored. Carried on my research, eventually tried to do a PhD, withdrew from that on energy efficiency and sustainable buildings. Oh, did an MSc in business and commerce. And, and environmental systems, because I was thinking there must be a reason. It's probably got something to do with economics and business. So let me do an economics degree. So I did an MSc in that, as well as my MPhil, started my PhD again, and about three and a half, four years. Yeah, I gave up. Yeah, right. I gave up. Okay. I thought that was it. I, we, we were not going to do it. So did you accept 
oh, I, I just can't control this. And therefore, like, I've, I've tried, but I, ca I can't control the out, you know, I can't, it, I can't come at it from any other direction and just deal with that that way because it, it, it must be frustrating. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, I would love to have had my ideas tested. You know, I wouldn't have had a problem if we'd have tried and it'd be like, yeah, John, we tried what you said and it didn't work. And that that was, the, the, the tragedy was that every time somebody kind of did something similar to what we had proposed 20 years earlier or whatever, it'd be like, check it out. This really works. It's amazing. And I'd be like, oh, fuck, oh, goodness. Ah, you know, and it would be really, really. And that that was actually sometimes quite hard. And it almost, it seems a bit spiteful because it's like, that's really great. You've come up with that and everything. And, and I'm really pleased you're enthusiastic about doing that. But, you know, oh, you know, I, yeah, so that that was that was hard that, to deal with, but, but you know things got worse. It became, it wasn't projections anymore. All the data was coming in. There were some very scary realities, you know, of year after year. Uh, there, there was 2014, which was the warmest year we'd ever recorded. Then 2015, which was the warmest year we'd ever recorded, including 2014. Then 2016, it was still warmer again, and I thought that was it. And this is when it kind of happened. You know, I was like, that's it. We're just on a path. Every year is going to be warmer than the next. I know three years is an absolutely not scientific way of going at it. But I just was like, I knew this was going to happen. And, and this is it. And, and then 2017 was a little bit cooler. And we thought, oh, there we go. 2018, slightly cooler again. And yay. And then 2019 was slightly warmer. And then 2020 is the warmest equal to the warmest we've ever had. And that's been this period. And, you know, in there is the abyss that I looked into. And fundamentally what I did was I designed a, a zero carbon home that was resilient to a six degree global temperature rise. And the plan was, I was gonna build it in Scotland, hold my family, take them up there. And we were gonna enjoy the last years in as comfortable a way as we could and that was my plan that, that was just the most psychotic plan ever you know but that was it that was the best I could come up with yeah I get that because armed with this knowledge of where things are going you want and you wanted to protect your family so that that sounds not not a crazy idea that, that's so, so what what does this house look like that's going to be uh, robust Oh, it's it's well. I, I bore my students with it. I put I put ten years of I ten years of my life into the design of it. It's got every every bell and whistle on it, but none of it is innovative. I have to say, it's all invented by other people, which is why I know it's going to work. So what I've done is I pulled together every good idea of twenty five years of studying sustainable homes into one fantastic kind of uh, homogenous wonder. And it's, it's kind of weird to look at people. Some people go, oh, that's a bit unusual. Because first of all, it's round. Nice. Um, and, and yeah, yeah. Well, it was a, uh, my wife said it looks a bit like a, 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 an armoured tower that we've gone to see in a number of our historic. I'm, I'm really into medieval history and stuff. And, and the kids to this day, when we go, oh, there's a castle there. My kids sort of look up and go, oh, my really, Dad, we're going to be. Yeah, we are. We're going to go and see it. And so it looks a little like that. But there's a reason why the medieval people built in round towers because they're rock hard, they're incredibly structurally stable. And that's, you know, I'm using modern methods to do that. It, it gets thrown up very quickly, curved walls, thanks to the Romans, always a challenge because they decided that square bricks the way to go. Um, the, the Celts were not into round walls, the Scots were not into square bricks, sorry, into square bricks. So the, 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 um, uh, the Broch, I don't know if you've heard of this, but up in Northern Scotland, there are these things called brocks and, and they were all built out of stone and circular for, for the same reason. Ancient Celtic roundhouses, round because it's super efficient. You've got maximum space to minimum effort. So, so I started with that and, and it was like, yeah, and I know how to build that cheaply because we're using, and it's, it, people get a bit twitchy here, it's using cast concrete, but, but using a super insulated cast concrete, which my estimates are with the method of concrete um, that I'm looking at is 
maybe 500 years to a thousand years lifespan on this building. So with nominal maintenance. So that, that, was, that was another thing, but this isn't just for me. This is a generational point. And the roof's 12 tons of cast concrete, no maintenance ever. You know, all you're gonna be doing is changing the windows out now and then, and that's it. The thing will just stay. And, and it, it's kind of odd in that it's an upside down house. You put your bedrooms on the ground, ground floor, you put your living room on the top. That means if you get flooded, let me tell you, it's a lot easier to carry your clothes upstairs if you're being flooded than it is a chest freezer. And, you know, so having those kind of things upstairs is, is makes a lot of sense. But also heat rises and you tend to want it warmer where you live and cooler where you sleep. So yeah. why houses were never built that way? Well, I know why, because people don't like walking upstairs with their shopping. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a, you know, and, and you get people going, oh, what if somebody breaks in? I don't want to be asleep um, and, and they're breaking into my room. And it's like, you have heard of bungalows, right? You do know that large numbers of people live on a single floor anyway. And secondly, if you think think on it, a burglar's like, hmm, should I break into that house? Oh my goodness, the people are asleep on the other side of the window I'm breaking into. No, I won't, I'll move on. So actually, statistically, it's a lot safer. So, you know, it does all of these sort of gimmicky things and that, that aren't really gimmicks that are just, and I sort of grasp at 2% here, 5% there, 3% there, you know. And what you end up with is a building that, <laughs> if it performs the way it should in Scotland where I want to build it, it will make £5,000 a year of, of money for me with the electricity that you sell back to the grid after I've used all my electricity. So right. it, it earns me five grand a year, not enough to live on, but enough to reinvest in my house so that all my kit is shiny and new and has got an upgrade program built into it, you know, and that, that was, so it's like a living thing. It's like growing a fruit tree where you take the fruit from the tree and it kind of lives and, and it lives longer. Well, it lives sort of tree kind of scale, 300 to 500 years minimum of its lifetime. That was the, concept to me you know and oh and it, it happened to look over the sea and and others on a on a granite cliff a stable cliff cliff since the ninth century so i did, did do a bit of research on that so it's it's 50 meters above sea level but also with a view over the sea on a granite cliff so all, all of the all of these issues south facing granite cliffs water supply locally um you know high wind regime my the house itself is designed to take a category five walk through walk through a category five hurricane it would it would 280 mile an hour 300 mile an hour winds not touch this this structure temperature comfortable down to minus 30 and i think it will stay stable up to um, plus 40 uh, internal temperature not very maybe five or six degrees over a year with those kind of temperatures yeah. So, yeah, I would like to build. Oh, and it does cost a bit to build, 250000 to build, which is above the average. Well, no, it's not. It's actually comes in at about the average house price. But you do have to buy your land on top of that, don't you? Which is why I'm building in Scotland. And what's the, apart from obviously the land, what's the main uh, cost, if you like? Or is it just lots of... It's a house. It's just a house. It's just everything. It's just a house. You've just got to design everything in and everything's... There's no part of the house that does just one thing. So this okay. is this is the kind of gimmick to it. So the roof makes you strong against the wind, but it's also what I capture all my rainwater for, for my food, my water, my potable water. Mm -hmm. So it's my rainwater collection system. It's got sort of coated in a in a in a, a special sort of chemical uh, material that means that it doesn't leach stuff from don't collect water off most types of concrete it can be um, toxic over time so you've got to think about all of these okay. kind of things but anyway but it collects my rainwater my sun space on the front of the house keeps me warm grow my plants got my solar panels embedded into the roof everything meshes into everything else it's not you see a lot of houses now where they've got the kit kind of bolted on, like it's a, like an afterthought. Mm -hmm. And it's because I suppose the designers of it, they're architects or they're 
engineers or their thingy. I, because I don't fit into any of these boxes, I just had to mash it all up. And also I'm a tight Yorkshireman and, and I value engineered everything. So, you know, the rainwater, I, I wanted six months of water storage and that came to quite a lot of water. Um, so I, I wanted to engineer it. So just in case it didn't rain for six months. And that was quite a bit of, um, that needed quite a large tank. And my wife, she's, she would be, she would be a cetacean. She would be a, like a, a, a beautiful dolphin or something in another life. And she just loves to swim. When we go to the seaside, she's like, oh, I'll see you. And she's away and, okay. and she's in the water, no matter what the year, time of year is or whatever. So she loves to swim and everything. And she's always got a wetsuit in there and she just, just loves it. And, and, and the way I sold this new house to her is like, I thought, oh, if I make the water tank twice as big as it needs to be, that's great, but it becomes a swimming pool. And so I'm selling it to her as a swimming pool, but it turns out a British company about 10 years ago now invented a fresh water swimming pool. So they'd use biofiltration and you can put potable, it, you can drink. I went, we went to a, one of these swimming pools that they built in the UK. And the guy who took us around went, took a glass with him and went, do you want to try some? And he just scooped into the swimming pool and they gave me a glass of this water. Honestly, it tasted delicious. Really, yeah. it tasted nice, not bland or... And mm. I was like, so, so we've got a freshwater swimming pool that we, we heat, and, but it's also our water store. It's also our thermal store. So it keeps the house at a stable temperature because water doesn't change. So all of these, these gimmicks, gimmicks, things are sort of mashed in. And I bore my students for quite a few hours on all the nuanced, this is where we get our water from. This is where we treat our sewage. This is, but also this is where we live our lives. That, you know, you've got this beautiful swimming pool that is somewhere to sit, somewhere to be as well. That it's not just all engineering and, and everything. And my wife, as well as being a dolphin, is also a really keen artist and interior designer. So I was hoping that she would make it look absolutely beautiful as well, you know. Because I'm not sure if you're aware, but when you build a house for yourself, um, at one point, in the construction process, you can claim back your VAT. Right. So you're allowed to claim your VAT back just once, just once. Okay. And so the later you wait to claim your VAT back, the more money you get. And so the idea is we would finish the construction and then we'd claim our VAT and that's how much she'd have to do the interiors. So she was like, that's so good. So, we'd, so that way she wouldn't want, She'd want to wait as long as possible for, for before we, we you know, sort, sort of do that aspect so she'd get the most amount of money. But she was so excited about doing that as well. So, yeah, it's, it's but it's about a, a home as much as it is an engineering project, which was very important to me that it's got to be somewhere where you'd want to live as, as well as it making you five grand a year, which is nice. Sure. It sounds like you, as you said earlier, that you have taken all the bits of useful information that you've acquired over, uh, over the time uh, about making this unbelievably self-contained, resilient house. Is, is this something that could be, does it have to be a one-off or could other people do this? Yeah, yeah, my hope was that it would be, well, I had these grand plans 10 years ago before I lost it. That, that I would leave the university, maybe work one day a week there and actually go into building these houses. But sadly, I just didn't have the resources to, to it was gonna cost every penny that we'd earned throughout our entire lives five years ago to, to build it. And then even though I picked a location that already had planning permission for a house, the planning procedures had changed. And get this, even though the house is designed to be unscathed, by a one and a half meter flood. The fact that there was a there was a one in two hundred year chance of there being a thirty centimeter flood, they turned me down on the planning, and they literally in the appeal, the environment agency went. I saw that it was really resilient to flooding. I really look forward to seeing the build when it's built in an area that isn't in a flood risk. That, that literally that's in the. In the report, in the writing up of the report, so you know that that's an interesting point in terms of I get why the environment agency wants to protect people from flooding because there is a lot of millions of people in the UK that are struggling with this. But this house would have actually shown you a model 
how to build houses for the same price as a normal build mm. that would be resilient to one and a half meters flooding, which I thought would have been worth a punt anyway. But no. It's curious because we all see houses that are built on floodplains. How, how does that work? I, I don't know. I think they've got better lawyers than, than me. Uh, right. <laughs> These are large think, organizations yeah. that, that are doing, whereas I was on my own. Yeah. Um, you know, all right, I've got 25 years of experience in building resilient houses, mm -hmm. but the, they just don't believe me. They just didn't believe me. Nobody believed me. So people don't believe what I say, they just say, no, John, that sounds too good to be true. When I say, well, I built the first autonomous, I was involved. I didn't build it. I was involved in the first autonomous house build 20 years ago. And there have been people living in those for 20 years now. And the temperature in the house has never gone above 25 and never gone below 18, except when family went on holiday for six months. And, and it's been able to keep in that. And a, and a yearly bill for those houses is about 30 quid. Wow. Uh, and that's 20 years old. And that's 20 years. And I still take my students to see those houses now. Yeah. They're over in Hockerton in, in near Newark. And, and, and they, yeah. And, and when, we, when we were involved in that, we, we were absolutely confident that, you know, once people get to see this, and this is a volume house building method, these houses cost 80K each to build. So they're, they're, mm -hmm. they come in at the, the standard build price for a three bedroom house when Barrett or Simon or whatever build their houses, they usually build for about 80K for a three bedroom house. So these come in at the, yeah, yeah, that's how much they cost to build. The rest is land value and profit. Mm -hmm. So which land value has just gone insane over the recent years, but that's how much it does. So we, those were designed to deliver at that. They were designed as bungalows for lifetime homes. So no matter what your age, you can do that. Very low energy, very healthy, very high air quality and could be built at extraordinary densities. But because they're what we, we call berm houses. So those are houses that are actually covered in soil. You can't see them from the air. You can't right. see them from the air, which is weird. Mm. But here's the fun bit. You can ram the houses in layers, in rows, front to back. And all you see of the house row in front of you is a slight inclined grass verge or fruit trees, which what, what we plant on them usually. So you can just see all these fruit trees and everything in front of you. And, and then that's a row of houses and then they do the same. So it, it's a better place to live. This is not just about, oh, let's design some middle class tosh that, oh yes, it's eco, you know, it's eco, you know, like let's let's be vegan and and, and not eat dairy and, and be really holier than thou. And I, even though I, I don't eat dairy and I try not to eat meat and that's not my agenda, that, mm -hmm. that really isn't, it's not about, because I grew up in a council estate and, you know, there are, there are other things like people dying because they can't afford to eat their home or, or dying because they've got black mold or or, or suffering from asthma because the, the air quality in their houses are, are just awful. And I can deliver that for the same price as a normal house. And, and it, it, it makes me, well, the closest word to it is probably rage. That, that's, that's the closest I can think of that I can sort of say on your lovely podcast, but, but that, that's, that's the closest to it. And, and all the associated responses that go with rage in fact there's a poster behind me that says you know non-violent and that's one of the reasons is because I get so angry sometimes I need to just take a breath and look around and go the best chance of success is non-violent action there is no value in violence even though that might feel good for a second and sure. you know it's yeah, my, my dad was a straight talking guy, military guy. And, you know, perhaps, you know, we had these conversations and we perhaps were more right wing in our attitudes towards solutions than supposed middle class people were, you know, I don't know. It's a it's a debate that I'm happy to have. I can see that perhaps the club, I was going to say the climate inappropriately. Out there at the moment, there there isn't the desire for perhaps us going as far as that and going thinking, oh, this is the way we want to live. But I feel like we might be moving towards that, but there may be just being a, a, a sort of thinking that this is going to be the optimistic decade in which things will change. What about those people that want to make changes in a home that 
that isn't efficient or uh, wasn't built with those sorts of premises? Can people make changes in their home that they're in rather than wonder how they can get in a home that does oh, all those things? They better. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, it's of course. A, it's a, the, the 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 interesting point interesting by interesting i mean oh my god oh my god we're all going to die interesting is that that we have to be we have to have cut our carbon emissions by around 40% by the end of this decade to have get this a 50 50 chance to not initiate cascade events. And by those, I'm meaning sort of like an, an ongoing warming of the planet or changing our climate that we can't stop. Yeah. So there's a yeah. toss of the coin chance of doing that if we don't drop our carbon emissions by 50%. And I don't know about you, I've got kids, I've got a 21 year old and a 17 year old. And the idea of putting a, getting a revolver out and putting three, filling three chambers in of that revolver, spinning it up and putting it to my daughter's head which is what people are asking me to do if we only reduce carbon by 40 percent um well th that word rage kind of springs to mind again you know and and so the estimates are that about eight out of ten somewhere between seven or eight out of ten of the houses standing in 2050 2050 not 2030 2050 are currently built so right. yeah yeah so there needs and to be a lot the, of adaption going on. Yeah, and, and this is one of my, currently my a real serious research field that I'm doing. I'm, I'm speaking at, 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 a, at the CIAT, the, uh, it's, it's a architectural technology um, accredited group um, on next Wednesday. Um, and they wanna know about retrofit strategies. What, what right. can we do? Because the government quite recently gave 5,000 pounds that you could apply for 10,000 if you're on low income to improve your home. Yeah. You, you, may, you may have seen that, the Future Homes Grant, I think it was called. What a hokum that was. It just, five grand, really, five mm -hmm. grand. That, that, not gonna cut it. Not, it's, not, it's not blowing my skirt up, let me tell you. You know, that, <laughs> that, 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 I would, you know, if you want it doing right, if you want a zero carbon house, when only one tenth of one percent and that might be improving on now but i'm pretty confident that figures right one tenth of one percent are are you aware that all houses come with a fridge rating and energy performance certificate yes. when you sell it mm -hmm. so a to g um uh, if you finish a building to building regs now that's a high c or a low b mm -hmm. that's what it comes in at okay. so if you build a building regs at the moment that's what you come in at um if you push it a bit harder you can be a good b um, I've talked, one of my students is currently doing a fantastic um, dissertation. She's, she works in, in practice. She's a part-time student. And her, her construction company wanted to build a, a certificate houses in their new estate, but decided that the, that the cost to the benefit wasn't worth it. And so they came in at plus, a B plus, just on the borderline of that. Um, and so we currently enjoy only 1%, one-tenth of... 1% of our housing stock is A. Right. Mm. That's and not a, a bigger, is it? <laughs> yeah, A, A is, so it's one in a thousand. Yeah, one in a thousand houses. I think that's what it means, one, one in a thousand houses. Um, and A isn't zero carbon. <laughs> okay. So A's not even it. A doesn't even do it. A doesn't even do it. And yet when we're, and, and then, and now we're going to ask to push seven out of 10 of our current housing stock, houses in our current housing stock, push not to A, but beyond A. Now we have a little bit of a get out clause in that if the government does what it says it's gonna do and totally decarbonizes our electrical supply, if they, if they okay. make our entire electrical mm -hmm. supply uh, zero renewable in, mm -hmm. in one way or another, then, if we make our houses all electric, then on paper, our houses are zero carbon, yeah? Okay. Could be as simple as switching over to electricity in our homes. But if we do that without improving the efficiency of our homes, the amount of fuel poverty we will create in that process, because of course electricity is quite expensive and it's quite expensive to heat our homes using electricity. 
that 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 fills me with dread as well you know mm. so but so you have to bring down that amount of energy that you need to heat your homes and it isn't like i described earlier it's possible in a new build to build a house that is is it calling something zero heating is is, is a bit of a challenge because you might need you know two weeks of the year where you might need a little fan heater running or a, a candle literally oh this granny that i interviewed for research about 10 years ago she was living in this super insulated block of flats the uh, newark county council had, had refitted this block of flats and they'd they'd made it super insulation and i talked to her and i think she was called mabel it was just like she was a stereotype wrapped in a cliche she was just cute she was about four foot she came in and was like john i've got some cake and it's like oh my god you're my gran and, and she <laughs> brought me in and she was like fed me cake and and tea throughout our, our interview and i was talking to her so what's it like living here so oh, it's great john i love it and in the winter they tell me that I'm allowed to have some heating on, but I've realised all I've got to do, and remember this is 10 years ago, I changed my light bulb and she pointed at her main light that she used in her house. And then she took out this 60 watt old tungsten bulb. And she said, I just change it with this and it keeps my whole house, my old flat warm. That's what does it. And I don't need to worry about it anymore. And I was like, oh my goodness, you've just nailed it. You know, this whole idea that, you know, that, that you're not supposed to use tungsten light bulbs because they're really inefficient because about 80% of the electricity gets turned into heat. But she'd worked it out and she was like, oh, I'll just do that. Then I don't need to think about heating because it just keeps on out. And, you know, what we're asking for here is not a massive shift in how people live. If Mabel can manage it in her, in her early 80s, you know, then, then we can all manage living in it. If you're living in a house that's well-designed, it's relatively easy. No heating system, no no technology, no hive on your flipping phone, and no no complexity because the house just remains the same temperature all year round, just because it's designed that way. And you know that rather than having because engine I teach engineers and they they love the kit, don't they? They they oh let's put some let's put a heat pump in there, let's put some solar panels, let's do it's like how about we design design a house that doesn't need any of that how about we do that and they'd be like who john are you sure so if you can i I'm, I'm a great believer of the kiss principle i always get the mantra is keep it simple stupid keep it simple stupid because we've got to roll this out to everybody not 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 to some eco warriors like you or i who'd be like oh yeah taking the internal and external temperature every day yeah, I'd really be happy doing that. Would, would you? Would you really? You know, I, I, I'm not sure if you would. <laughs> Sorry, I've gone on. <laughs> no, it's fine. What would be the first thing that people could do then that would be most useful? Is there okay. Any... I, I think, you know, I get asked this all the all time. All the time, yeah. And every time Sorry. I'm like, oh, thanks. No, 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 not at all. <laughs> because every time I do it, it forces me to think about it. It used to be, it used to be, Loft insulation, easy to do, relatively cheap, and you can buy the insulation from a company that I happen to be director of that is recycled cotton insulation called Innertherm. There we go. Oh, bit of a, bit of a plug. Excellent. Okay. It's actually four times more expensive than the cheapest insulation on the market because it's the lowest carbon and uses yeah. entirely recycled material. So yeah, Crap. probably you won't. <laughs> but but that's the, it's even lower carbon than sheep's wool, which most people know about but don't think about. But anyway, yeah, that used to be my thing because I was like, oh, in a therm, I, I do that, and it's like, uh, and then people are saying, but I've already got insulation. So now it's changed. Now what everybody needs to do is have a house plan. So you have you assess your house, you look at your house as it is now, and then you look at your house as it would perhaps look as a zero carbon house. And you put the thought in to both of those houses. You do the energy assessment, get advice on how to do it, and then you look, you push it, and you think, what has the house got to look like to be zero carbon? And that is your house plan. And that house plan might live for 20, 30 years. And every time you think, oh, we've got a bit of extra money, what shall we do? And it's like, let's get the house plan out. Yeah. Open it up and say, how much money have we got? We go down our different choices of options. They start at zero, which you should have already done. 
goodness sake, do them now. Um, like, you know, and it goes all the way down to 13 grand, 14 grand for a heat pump, maybe, you know, at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And, and you're oh, what should we spend? But what you don't do is you don't go cheap and go halfway. Right. Because what you end up doing with that is you can't go back to it. So let's say you, you think, oh, let's replace the windows and you replace them with double glazed windows and you go, oh, I don't quite have the 18, 17, 18, well, 12 grand for triple glazed windows. Let's go double glazed and good quality and locally made and all of this kind of stuff. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that's it. You've done it. You've now sterilized your windows. You will never spend that money again. Certainly not on a triple glazed window because your double glazed windows are okay. But now you can't reach zero carbon. Mm. Now you can't. You sterilized your house. You sterilize, you can't reach zero carbon now because you didn't know. And nobody should blame you for not knowing that, that you should know because somebody should be telling you, somebody, sure. a loudmouth yeah. frog like me should be saying, the first thing you should do is have a house plan and let's have a, a website that says, um, this is how you do it, your house plan. In fact, I have a plan how to roll this out. And it's, it's again, self-promotion here. Go I am... I'm halfway through my How to Survive a Zombie Apocalypse book. And you'd be like, what? John, you were talking about houses. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. This is it. And, and what, what it does is it outlines how to retrofit your house for long-term survival in a zombie apocalypse. And it's a bit of a joke, but it turns out the same strategies that you'd employ to live after society has collapsed, supposedly, in the zombie apocalypse, are the technologies that you'd employ to make your house zero carbon. And so it's kind of supposed to be like a fun, tongue-in-cheek way of introducing sustainable house construction strategies, which literally, when I said that to you, I saw your eyes glaze, just (laughs) slightly, you know, because that is the most boring term ever. You know, do in, on Coronation Street or EastEnders, do they ever go, well, how's your solar panels do, doing on your roof? Or I've heard you thinking about increasing the amount of loft insulation. No, no, you don't. No, you, whereas it'd be like, oh, freezing in the winter, zombies outside. How do we survive that? You know, it's kind of my gimmick. So I'm hoping to to roll that out. And it's a, and, and it'll actually be all the all the technology in it will be valid. So I'm hoping that it, it might even get sort of adopted by technology courses in in universities and stuff that you know it's just a maybe the students will read it if it's underpinned with this humor i I think uh you make a really good point there that it's making it accessible it's making it mean something to everyone so that they switch on and go okay i want to hear more about that so you know if it takes a zombie a couple apocalypse then go for it is what i would say <laughs> i mean you could use any dystopian collapse you know i mean i sure. I, I, I was thinking about pandemic and thank goodness i didn't because yes. you know that would have really yeah. been inappropriate and i quite you know i would have had to change it so that's why and, and you know i wish again i could say i wish it was my idea but there's the, the american uh, emergency um, organization um, oh my goodness, what are they called now? Oh, it's just slipped my mind. They they they, they do all the uh, disaster relief, hurricane relief. The, mm. Oh, well, anyway, you go on the website for emergencies and they have loads of tabs like tornado risk, hurricane risk, um, flood risk, all of these. And right at the bottom, there's zombie apocalypse. And, and you click on it and it, it tells you about having a bug out bag, having food for three days, making sure you've got water. It's actually exactly the same of what is a hurricane risk preparation, but they've just put it in and, and again, they've just repackaged it. And of course, of course, the kids, when they're looking at it, go, oh my God, let's look at that. You know, and it's like, yeah. And, and I went, oh my goodness. Yeah, that's really good for disaster relief. But I've got an idea where I could use that. So sure. yeah, once again, John has not had an innovative idea. You know in what? We do not, we do not have time to be reinventing the wheel. If there is good ideas out there, it's just about dispersing them and trying to get them utilized and if you're part of that then i think you you, well, need, you, to, you need to be kind to yourself john <laughs> look I, I can looking at the time and we are definitely running oh, out so no where, did, where did that go There's oh, a... <laughs> no. we'll have to come back 
I've you got so much more. Yes, I'm, I'm absolutely sure you will come back. Uh, <laughs> but as we come to a close for this particular right. episode, I'm going to finish with, um, because uh, you, I have two questions in mind, and one of which you've already answered. But the last one is, okay, we've, we've got to 2050. Mm. What does your world look like? You hope that it looks like? Well, well, there's there's two. There's a fork in the road at the moment. There, there's there's a fork in the road at the moment, and one of them is the oh my goodness, it's the shiny one. It's just like we walk forwards, and and people don't die in the winter because they can't afford to to heat their homes because their houses just run, and people grow local food and they know each other because there's an allotment that that's run by the community and. And the kids are, are really grumpy because they're forced to work there, but secretly they kind of like it because you know. And 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 people live work locally, and and they, they they do Zoom calls when they do that. And they every so often they build up their carbon credit so they can go abroad on an airship. Oh my goodness, you know, and, and that's a British-made airship with which will take you serenely across to somewhere beautiful and sunny and everything and. and and, and maybe you can, when you absolutely need a car, you can open your phone and you can say, hi, Johnny Cabs, can you just send me a car? I need it to carry my luggage from Ikea because I've just bought a whole load of stuff and I've just bust it here. And, or, and it's got to be big enough to put my bike in the back of it as well as, you know, the, and, and Johnny Cabs will turn up with a big car. And all of that and, and, and a government that doesn't really exist in a, in a form that we recognise because we have citizens' assemblies where groups of individuals sit down together and, and agree difficult problems and rather than worrying about whether they're going to get elected in four or five years it's like what do we want the future to look like that's what we want the future to look like and they all agree and it's a proper democracy and humans are actually engaged in that politics and and oh damn that sound, sounds great doesn't it I just oh <laughs> I literally had fingers just run down my back you know that was so that's that's the one fork yeah should we not the talk other about one, that fork <laughs> Well, the other one is is three million are dead or dying. Uh, our coastal cities are, are, are lost. Um, millions are moving from those inland, but are being pushed back by countries and people inland because they've got nothing. They've got less than nothing. And so they, they can't think of bringing any more people to that. And so conflict and violence abounds. The temperature and the weather are extremes we regularly get in the on along the equator um, a wet bulb temperature above body temperature so you're outside for more than two or three hours and you can't find yourself a body of water or an air-conditioned building you just die so you know africa's a lot got a lot less people in it than it had than it has at the moment um uh, we're desperately trying to grow food under glass in our northern hemisphere to to feed people we can do it but damn, it's nasty, you know. It's 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 we can feed people on algae and and seaweed, which actually is quite nice. Actually, I take it back. But you know, mass-produced indoor underground agriculture—it's got the calories, but it's not what I want, you know. And 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 people, there's no there's no democracy at all. It's just being given up because. There's so much violence and so much pressure on people just to live. And, you know, so we've given up just so much. And people, and the worst bit, the worst bit of that fork is that everybody will still be alive and look back and say, yeah, didn't we talk about this sort of 30 years ago when I was a kid? What did our parents, didn't, did they know? Did they know? And, and for me, looking back, somehow, somehow as a sort of 80, 90-year-old man, I, well, I could just, I don't know if I'll be able to lift my head at that point, you know, because I knew. And, and you know, and it, that, that's a horrible path. But, it, but I fear it has to be one or the other. I'm not sure if there's a middle path. Yeah. That, that's the bit that scares me. Mm. That, you know, if you're not on option A, the lovely one, you inevitably reach option B at some point. It's not that you can run somewhere continuously between the two. Mm. You, 
because the system's changing, you are forced into option two. And, and that ter terrifies me. Sorry to be so down. No. The Chinese agent is great though. Yeah, well, that, it's, it's being able to face the reality and then also being able to come back from it and think, okay, what can I do? And, you know, and know that you, you can't fix it all. You can do your little bit. Um, yes. And hopefully everyone else will do their bit too. They will. They will. Yes. I feel. I feel that you know. Once they know that there's an option, the yeah. problem is I don't think people know that what what I want. I don't want people to wear sackcloth and 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 smear ashes on their face. I want them to be shiny and and educated and, and healthy and oh my goodness, you know that that that's what I want. I want a beautiful. I even. You know, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm one of the few people that's not angry at Elon Musk for going to Mars. I kind of love <laughs> pushing humanity to the bleeding edge of our technology and our advancement as well. I, I do not want to be living off the land and, and hunter-gatherer. You know, some people, some of my friends who are vegans and stuff, they, they kind of have a really passive way of looking at life. And I'm afraid I'm a bit of a technologist. I'm, I'm a guy guys are just in love with kit and technology and everything and and, and I, but I want it where it's appropriate mm -hmm. I don't think appropriate. yeah yeah anyway you've got to I'm, I'm going on again <laughs> thank you so much John it's been an absolute pleasure same here really talking about possible futures future worlds science fiction it's cool. science fact or faction science faction whatever you can think of a word <laughs> thank you Wow, I hope you enjoyed this first episode as much as I did. I so appreciated John providing us with an insight into what a zero carbon home could look like. You can find links to John on my podcast page at www.theowlhoot.com forward slash podcast. I'd like to give thanks to Jeremy Jones for the music and to you for listening. If you want to hear more stories of people doing great things that positively impact our environment, then please do subscribe, rate and review through your podcast app. And why not share this episode with someone you think might enjoy it? In the next episode, I talk to Anne-Marie McMillan, founder and manager of the Derbyshire Toy Libraries, on borrowing toys and running a toy library. Until next time, bye for now. <laughs>